Hello, everyone. Thank you so much for tuning in today. On this episode, I am interviewing Dr. Gabriel Pardo. He is a physician and a scientist that aims to provide comprehensive care to people with multiple sclerosis through a multidisciplinary approach while also participating in clinical research, which is pretty rare to do both. He is the director of Oklahoma Medical Research Foundation, also known as OMRF, Multiple Sclerosis Center of Excellence. On today's episode, we talk about comprehensive care for people with MS, what an MS Center of Excellence is, and MS research happening in Dr. Pardo's center. The big question is, how does someone with MS actually improve their mobility, strength, energy, independence, the list goes on. My name is Dr. Gretchen Hawley, physical therapist and multiple sclerosis specialist. Welcome to the Missing Link Podcast. Tune in as I share the top strategies and exercises to help you gain control over your life with MS using research-driven insights and advice from top industry experts. Whether you're newly diagnosed or have had MS for over 30 years, whether you have relapsing MS or progressive MS, this podcast is for you. You're sure to feel empowered and inspired after each episode. Ready? Let's dive in. Dr. Pardo, thank you so much for being here with us today. Gretchen, it's a pleasure to be here. Of course, and we were just chatting a bit before we pressed the record button, but we were both at the annual MS conference this past year, and we were just talking about how many amazing lectures there were. There was just so much information there, and you were one of the lecturers. I really think that it's a very uh, important and interesting time in multiple sclerosis. You know, it's a field of medicine that has been evolving significantly in the recent past, and we always have new information. There's great excitement for new things to come. So I think that we felt that during the meeting, right? Absolutely. Yeah. And there was just, it, it was hard to determine which ones to go to. There's just so much information happening now at, at such a rapid rate too. That's exactly right. Science is advancing for the benefit of our patients and that makes us giddy. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> so we're going to get into your MS Center for Excellence, talk about what that is, what it even means, who, who mm -hmm. it's for. But before we do that, is it okay if I ask you a question from my interview deck? Absolutely. Go for it. All right, I'm gonna shuffle over here. Your question is, do you put up a boundary if any area of your life to keep people out? Huh. So I think that it is healthy to put boundaries, uh, even though I will have to say that I'm an open person. I have an open door policy in my office. I certainly want my patients to feel like they can reach me easily and that we have open lines of communication. I think that all that being said, it's healthy for any of us in any circumstances to have certain boundaries so that we have a good working relationship. And by working, I mean, not only as a physician patient relationship, but in anything in life, right? We do not want people to overstep those boundaries sometimes and hurt us or 
disrupt the process. Yeah. It's funny that you mentioned that. I feel like I really didn't know what a boundary was until a few years ago. I remember someone asking me like, so what are your boundaries? Which is a very broad question to begin with. But she asked me that and I was like, what do you mean? Like, <laughs> what, what, what's a boundary? And this was probably like six years ago. Now I've got lots set in place, which I really yes. like. But <laughs> they, they come to you naturally, right? When you feel like, hmm, that doesn't feel right. Yes, definitely. So I feel like maybe a good first question for our talk today is, who are you? For those that don't know who you are, can Mm -hmm. you just explain a bit about your background and what you do? Oh, absolutely. I am uh, dedicated to the care of multiple sclerosis and related disorders, uh, but by background, I uh, finished medical school after which I actually did a, a residency training in ophthalmology. So my first uh, specialty was ophthalmology. And uh, while doing ophthalmology, I really started liking a subfield of ophthalmology called neuroophthalmology that deals with the relationship between the eyes and the brain, not only how we see, but also how the brain controls eye movements. And following my residence in ophthalmology, I decided to do further training, a fellowship in neuroophthalmology, which is that specific field. And while doing that, I had like an epiphany because I started seeing a lot of patients with multiple sclerosis, MS manifest very commonly in the eyes. And it was like, this is what I want to do in life. I want to take care of these individuals. I want to understand the disease better. It really was offering me a lot of the things that I liked, neurology, ophthalmology, immunology, and decided at the time that that was what I wanted to do. So I went back and did another residency in neurology this time. And uh, after that, then I've been dedicated to neuroimmunology for over 20 years now, just dedicated to uh, the field of multiple sclerosis and related disorders. Yeah, I think neuro-ophthalmology is so fascinating. I, I don't know why, but it's always just been like, I want to know more about that. It's there's so, especially because one of the first symptoms for a lot of people with MS, it starts in their eyes. So I feel like you're catching them early on. That's absolutely right. The representation of the visual system in the brain is so big. So much of our brain is dedicated to our eyes. We're visual a visual species more than anything else, right? We do not work as a species by by smell or by touch. We work by our eyes, our visual system. So that is represented hierarchically very significantly in the brain. And that's why given the randomness of the presentation of MS, that we have a higher chance of hitting areas that are involved with vision. And by doing so, then the manifestations are not only early on, but also something that people pay attention to. So one of the common manifestations being optic neuritis, inflammation of the optic nerve that will affect your vision, you're going to notice that you're seeing blurry out of one eye right away, right? And it's getting worse throughout the day. And next day, oh, I cannot see very well. I'm going to seek attention. I'm not going to let this pass, right? So that makes it uh, a complaint that take you to the doctor very early on that will light the bulb in the physician saying, hmm, this might be MS. Sometimes, unfortunately, other symptoms of MS are not as clear. Say you develop numbness of the hand, right? And you wake up and say, oh, I slept funny on that arm, right? And you kind of dismiss it. And eventually after a week or two, it goes away and you say, hey, I'll forget about it. But probably that was your very first manifestation of MS, but you didn't put it in the same context as you did with your visual manifestations. So that's why it is not only common, but recognized early on because patients do seek attention for this type of problems and then it represents a significant proportion of those that are eventually diagnosed with multiple sclerosis. 
Wow. That's so interesting. I guess I never thought of that before. I never questioned why vision is known to be one of the first symptoms, but that's so true. We would seek assistance and help out first because we notice it right away. That's exactly right. I like that. (laughs) Awesome. All right. So let's get into what is an MS Center for Excellence and what is your role at that center? So, you know, I think that multiple sclerosis has proven itself and for your audience, I'm sure that they uh, will agree with this uh, to be a very complex disease. And the complexity is driven by multiple factors, one of which is the variable manifestations of the disease, given the randomness of the location of the damage that we have secondary to inflammatory activity from the immune system activation in the brain and spinal cord, patients with MS can have multitude different symptoms, and there are no two MS patients that are alike. Uh, one patient will present with, as I mentioned, optic neuritis and blurred vision out of one eye. The next patient is going to come to us with a foot drop, and they're limping because they do not have proper strength to pick up their foot, right? Both have the same disease, but very different manifestations. So that in itself, of course, uh, starts telling us that the approach to the disease has to be uh, adaptable to the type of manifestations that they have. And we have to be cognizant of the fact that in addition to potential physical manifestations, that patients also have potential cognitive manifestations from MS. Cognition can also be affected as a consequence of this process. So we have physical problems, we have cognitive problems, and then the symptomatology that comes along with that uh, is extremely variable. So uh, we need to be thinking whenever we see an MS patient, not only are we controlling the disease as we set forth with our treatments, meaning reducing the frequency at which they have relapses or lesions in the MRI or progression of deficits, but also how can I improve your quality of life? What else do I need to do to maximize your function and minimize your symptoms, not only treat disease long-term, reduce the risk, but what can I do today to help you? And so we have to be very comprehensive in that approach. We have to think about all these different aspects we have about. We need to ask about all these problems and identify those that need to be addressed. If it's the bladder, if it's sexuality, if it's cognition, if it is mood, if it's physical limitations. So that kind of builds upon that complexity. And uh, we would like to have a comprehensive approach, a holistic approach to the management of the disease, multidisciplinary, meaning we have different types of healthcare professionals like physical therapy and social workers and counselors and people dealing with the bladder, like the urologist, so that then we can offer that type of care to our patients. So that is what a comprehensive center is, a center of excellence, where we have that philosophy of the management of MS in a comprehensive manner so that we can improve not only long-term outcomes, but quality of life now. I think that is so fantastic and also extremely rare. It's ideal. You know, we all would love to have all of our healthcare professionals on the same page and everyone knowing what's going on so that the patient can have the best quality of life, but it's extremely rare. How many centers are there like this, at least in the U.S.? So there are multiple, but we do have a, a geographical, a geospatial diversity that kind of reflects a little bit of how the healthcare is distributed throughout the country. And uh, even though we have clusters of these type of centers in the East Coast and the West Coast and some in the Midwest, in the Central Plains, for example, we have great scarcity of these centers. Our center is in an island of absence of this type of care, and we cover a very large geographical region because of that fact alone. So we're not the only ones that kind of take this approach, but certainly they are not easily accessible. And then we 
start talking about not only the geographical access to it, but the amount of individuals that are dedicated to this type of care, that it's not everybody. We uh, certainly would like to entice more physicians and more healthcare professionals to take this line of work and be committed passionately to the treatment of multiple sclerosis in a comprehensive way. Yeah, you recently shared a photo, I think maybe it was on Twitter, or at least that's where I saw it. And mm -hmm. it was a map of the United States and all the centers and your guys's center is like the only one in that area. It was Correct. crazy, yes. really eye opening. <laughs> Yes, that's so, specifically what I was referring to. It's a, it's a study that was looking at the geographical distribution of the MS centers around the country. And we have vast areas of the country that are underserved. Like they're underserved for a lot of other healthcare issues, right? And we need to be cognizant of that and not even getting into disparities to access for care for different types of populations and minorities, which will compound the problem even more. Mm -hmm. So is your center somewhere where someone with MS would come and they would get treatment there from all of these different professionals? Yeah, so, so we do have a multidisciplinary approach. We have different types of professionals, several of which are in-house with us and some of which are at other facilities, but with whom we have a working relationship and they have a higher level of understanding of the disease, right? So for example, we do not house a urologist at our MS center. We do have working relationship with neurourologists, so physicians that deal with the bladder, but specifically bladder issues related to neurological conditions that understand the process well, and they will be seeing our patients at their own facility. But we have this concept that for those specialties that we cannot provide in-house, that we have these MS Center of, of Comprehensive Care without walls, right? I mean, we can reach out into the community to complement uh, what we're being able to offer. It's such a fantastic model. Do you see patients virtually as well, especially because you are just in the middle of Right. Lack of resources. Right. Yes. Yeah. So we use telemedicine. Actually, a little story behind that since you bring it up. And I like to tell stories. So stop me when I'm telling too many stories, please. But we were looking into telemedicine to do physical therapy rehabilitation to our patients because, you know, certainly coming to the uh, neurologist to take uh, care of their uh, visits every six months, that is the usual frequency, is doable for people in rural areas that they have to drive for long distance. But for example, physical therapy is something that needs to be done three times a week, right? And if you want to access a specialized person that understands your condition, then driving two hours three times a week is just not feasible. So we were very interested in kind of developing the concept of tele-rehabilitation or telemedicine back around 2014, 2015, something like that. And we decided to do a study and we set forth a study uh, where we were doing telemedicine. We we're comparing three groups, uh, one that will come in person another one that will have a home health exercise program and another group that will be doing telemedicine with our physical therapists and they will go through the process and we had different outcomes. We were looking at how we can benefit our patients. And the study eventually showed that telephysical therapy, telerehab is as good for those outcomes that doing it in person. But the story that I wanted to tell was that in 2015, when we were looking for funding uh, to do the study, you have to apply for grants and you have to explain to people what is it that you want to do. And back then people were saying, tele what? Zoom? What is Zoom? We had to spend more time explaining to them not what the study was about, what to do, but what was this technology that we were talking about that you, you can see them and talk to them at the same time and do these things. Yeah, like, you know, like FaceTiming, but in medicine, yes. So nowadays, imagine that after the pandemic, everybody's so familiar with this. We do it all the time and gladly it has 
being received uh, appropriately by the healthcare professionals and patients because it does supplement the needs and patients, especially in rural areas where access is limited. Definitely. That's so funny. I had such a similar experience, but way later, it was probably in... I believe it was 2018, maybe end of 2017, early 2018, I had the same issue where so many of my clients with MS were driving at least an hour just to come see me. And then they need to do the PT session and then they need to go home and then make dinner. Like it was just so fatiguing and really unrealistic to come consistently. And so for my boss at the time, I was like, Hey, can I talk to them on zoom? Is there any way I can work with them in a different way? And telehealth even in 2018 was like taboo, like insurance companies weren't covering it. So my boss immediately shot it down. He's like, nope, that's not an option. So that's ultimately why I started my own thing. But it's crazy how quickly the pandemic changed things. It was one of the few good things that we got from the pandemic was this ability to do telemedicine. Yes. Yes. Yeah. And one thing about your center that I think is really fantastic, but also interesting is that you guys also do a lot of research in-house, if I'm not mistaken. Is that right? Correct. Yeah. So our institution is very different from most institutions around the country or around the world in that we are, we're a biomedical research institution primarily. So we do a lot of research in different aspects of healthcare, different disease states. One of the largest areas that we have within our institution is immunology. So we look at different autoimmune diseases to include lupus and Sjogren's, but a big emphasis in neurological autoimmune diseases such as multiple sclerosis. And in that setting of uh, having this institution that does basic research, for the most part, we have complemented that with clinical care. So what we have is a place where we provide, as we were talking, what we believe to be optimal care to our patients, access to multidisciplinary care, uh, where we take care of them as you would in any other facility uh, with this comprehensive model. But in addition to that, the ability to participate in research, and we have two big areas of research, clinical research, meaning we do research in humans, patients that volunteer to be part of those studies. And there's a whole host of different things that we could be doing, but also we do basic research. So we have laboratories where we're doing experiments, you know, in the lab, even with animal models, trying to understand some specific aspects of multiple sclerosis. And all of that is in the same facility in-house. So we have from basic researchers, neuroimmunologists, all the way to clinicians that are involved in trying to understand multiple sclerosis better, come up with better solutions. And I think this is a very good combination because it allows us to have this dialogue between the clinician that is sensing the need of patients, what is it that we need in the office, in real life, and being able to relate that to people that are doing basic research, coming up with new ideas. This is what we need to focus on, right? So we're very unique in that sense that everything is housed in the same location. Yeah. As a physical therapist, I feel like that is, that would be my dream job to be there and have all of these other healthcare professionals, but also researchers there mm-hmm. in the moment. That just sounds so cool. And it's also really accessible. I think, I don't know if you find this, especially because you're at your center, but so many, the majority of people with MS that I work with have never participated in a clinical trial and they don't even know what clinical trials are happening. So when it's in-house like that, I imagine just the awareness and accessibility is so much higher. 
Absolutely. You know, we are able to identify patients that uh, individuals that really will benefit from some of these studies. And there are a whole host of different types of studies, right? I mean, from development of new medications, and we need to understand in the different phases of development, phase two, phase three, phase four, to understand the benefits and the potential side effects and safety concerns of medications to determine if they are appropriate for general use, right? That's what the process of understanding new medications is. And we have been involved in most of the new medications available, we have been part of those trials. Uh, that is very important. But beyond that, there are a lot of other things that we need to sort out in MS, right? Uh, how can we better treat fatigue? How can we better address gait dysfunction? How can we better understand what are the early changes? How can we better monitor the evolution of the disease? All those things also need to be researched, need to be understood. So our patients participate in studies that are not only about new medications, but also, again, how do we better take care of patients? How do we minimize the impact of the disease? And how can we monitor the disease better? So tons of opportunities to be part of clinical trials or studies that are going to advance our knowledge and are going to, of course, turn around and help the MS community at large. Yeah. And I don't know how many people realize this, but that is key. Like if you're working with, I mean, in my case, a physical therapist, but if you're working with a physical therapist or any clinician that doesn't stay up to date on research, you could be doing very outdated exercises that have been now found to not really do anything. And so just staying up to date with that, even as a clinician who is treating people with MS is just so, so important. I can't even explain how valuable that is. And you guys work with more than MS too. NMO, I believe is the, another big one. Correct. Yes. So neuromyelitis optica and another disease that comes into that category called MOGAD or myelin oligodendrocyte glycoprotein associated disease. Say that five times fast and uh, you will have a tongue twister, right? But yes, they're all related diseases in the sense that they manifest in some common ways, but they're very distinct conditions. The pathophysiology, meaning the mechanism of disease, what is happening to the immune system and how the brain spinal cord are being attacked are very different processes and we need to understand them distinctly because the treatment approaches are going to to be different as well. So being able to differentiate them, uh, even though they might look alike in some aspects, is very important, again, to have an accurate diagnosis so that we can institute the appropriate therapy and so that we can learn more about this, right? NMO is not as common as MS. MOGAD is not as common as MS. So our understanding, knowledge, and resources regarding treatments are more limited. That does not mean that we should not work very hard to expand that knowledge and expand the opportunities. And uh, being aware of that certainly is going to be beneficial long-term for uh, th those type of uh, outcomes. Definitely. And can someone who is not a patient of your center, can they participate in your clinical trials as well? Yes, uh, that is certainly possible. Uh, we tend to find most of the participants for clinical trials as being part of our patients. We already have an established care. They know us. There is, I think that's something that is important is to having developed a level of trust uh, between the uh, team, uh, the center, and the patient. That goes both ways, yes, uh, in both directions. We need to have a good working relationship. But when one proposes investigational approaches or research, people are interested, but sometimes, hmm, Am I a guinea pig? What is it you're trying to do with me, right? Uh, rightfully so, understandably so. But if you have developed that level of trust that we are here because we're looking after you, because we really have your interest in mind and your outcomes as what we really want to work towards, then that facilitates the understanding of what a clinical trial is and what are the pros and cons, and that we're really presenting them to them as a good, honest opportunity to improve their care somehow. Yeah, and I think one thing that 
can add to that is the variety of clinicians that you have there and the variety of research that you have. It, it doesn't feel, at least to me, like it would be like, oh, this is the one trial we're doing and we're trying to recruit right. as many people as possible. Right, right. <laughs> that's great. Yes, that's, that's really the case, yes. We find, usually we have the opportunity to find a trial that really suits a person's needs depending on their characteristics and not just trying to pigeonhole them into it because that's all we're doing. Right, right. Yes. And I remember reading that you guys recently had a very generous donation or grant to the center. Do you want to talk a bit about that? Sure. This is something that certainly is very well received by us and the community in general. This is a very generous approach from a family, the Stark family. And this is the result of us having taken care of one of their family members for many years. Uh, it, it's a process of, again, developing trust, developing relationships, right? And all we have been doing, of course, is taking the best care possible as we see it uh, for this one individual. And eventually the family recognizes that approach that good work and uh, they wanted because they had the means and uh, the opportunity to recognize that type of work and approaches asking what can we do uh, to help right and of course we have needs uh, as we were mentioning we're the only center in a very large geographical area so access to us is very important so having the amount of individuals within the team that fulfill all of the requirements that our patients have is very important so growth is always something we're working on. And of course, with that comes a lot of other needs. So that grant is going to go as a challenge grant. We're going to find other donors and resources to amplify that impact and hopefully turn it around again to continue to create not only good science, but good care for our patients. Yes, I saw a video. I believe the video was from the people who donated and it was kind of like a success story. Oh my gosh. It's so heartfelt. It's such a, I, maybe I'll put that in the show notes. It's very heartwarming to see her story. It, it, it is, it is. And, you know, certainly it, it is a good outcome story. And we, of course, she and I understand this is a lifelong process uh, that so far we're doing well, but that we need to continue to work on that. But it's certainly a very good story because it, te it tells the story and it'll be fantastic if you can put the video on. I think that it tells the story very well. I'm just not going to do a good service doing that. But essentially, it is the story of uh, initial roadblocks and problems with the care of MS and not seeing success and kind of getting discouraged and seeing this doom and gloom situation, right? What's going to be of me? What is going to be my outcome? What about my goals, my aspirations, my life? And kind of seeing that brick wall in front of you and being able to shatter that and say, wait a minute, there are other approaches. Let's up optimized treatment. Let's work hard on trying to improve your quality of life. And eventually, can we get to the other side? And this is a success story in that regard that she was able then to accomplish those sort of goals that she had in, in mind. And things are going well. And we need to continue to work hard every day to make sure that it continues to be the case. Yes, I'll definitely put that link in the show notes. I think it's really powerful too, because so many people with MS, I mean, no one knows where their disease is going to go. And it can be easy, as you said, to feel that doom and gloom, especially if you don't have the right care, but hearing stories like this makes it feel possible. And one beautiful thing about MS is that it is different for every person. And so you have the possibility of having similar stories. So I personally love hearing all success stories like this. I think it can motivate people, but also inspire them to stay on track and to continue being an advocate for themselves. Absolutely. And with the advancement of science, as we've been discussing, and the availability of higher efficacy medications, uh, we are seeing certainly uh, different outcomes, much 
better, tighter control of the inflammatory activity. Uh, not to say that that is the end all uh, about management of multiple sclerosis. There are more things we need to do. But we have really been able to bring down this acute inflammatory activity and reduce the frequency of relapses significantly, reduce the presence of new lesions in the MRI significantly. And by doing so, we certainly are changing the outcomes, short-term and long-term for these individuals. So things that in the past were not feasible, I think that we are accomplishing that. Key concepts here, though, early diagnosis, early initiation of effective therapy, and continuation of treatment are things that are very important and will guarantee to great degree success long-term. Well, this has been so helpful. I really appreciate your expertise, your insights, sharing all of this with us. If our listeners do want to either find you, maybe work with you, or just hear about what your center is up to, what are some resources on where they can find that information? Oh, sure. So, I mean, our website, omrf.org. The institution also has a a Twitter account, so that's at omrf. Or personally, at Doc4MS, D-O-C-F-O-R-M-S. That is my personal Twitter account where I periodically update the account with some pertinent information and sometimes some fun stuff. I agree. I love following your account. It's very informative, but in in an easy to understand way. Awesome. Well, thank you so much again. I really appreciate it. Gretchen, it was a pleasure chatting with you anytime, any day. Happy to do it. Thank you for listening to today's show. I am so grateful to have you as a listener. If you'd like extra resources, such as a video of one of my seated exercise classes, my favorite core exercises, and the opportunity to ask me your questions, head to missinglink.com forward slash insider. That link will be shared in the show notes along with links to my social media handles. If you loved this episode and think a friend or family member with MS would benefit from listening, please go ahead and text or email this podcast to them right now. Sharing this podcast will help me educate and empower as many MS warriors as possible. Thanks again for joining and be sure to tune in next week for another episode of the Missing Link Podcast.